Uh, I have to admit that a week ago, I didn't know anything at all about the Dominican Republic. I didn't know where it was much. I mean, it was down there south. We looked at some maps and looked at some pictures and stuff, but I really didn't know anything about the, the Dominican Republic. And, and now we've been to not only there uh, on vacation to a resort, but we've also been to homes. We've been to plantations. Um, we've seen them at work. We've seen them how they live. We've seen them at work. We've seen them at play. And I have to say, the people of the Dominican Republic are an amazing people. They will tell you with uh, quite a bit of pride that they are the fifth happiest nation in the world. Fifth happiest. And if you're saying, well, we must be number one or two, four, we're not. We're not even up there. Um, but they're the fifth happiest nation, and you can see it. You see it on their faces. You see it in their work ethic. You see it in, their, uh, in the, the way that they greet you. There is a great happiness there, which is both wonderful to see and amazing, and it's also heartbreaking when you realize that they share their home, they share their island with Haiti. The Dominican Republic is on the east side and Haiti is on the west side. And when most of us think of Haiti, we think of images of devastation from the earthquakes that have been there. We see people with broken lives and, and broken homes and, and just the, the destruction from the earthquakes. And as our tour guide explained, it, explained to us, there's a fault line that runs under that portion of the island that's just on the Haiti side. And he said when the earthquake hit, it was felt in parts of the Dominican Republic, but he himself, he didn't know about it. He didn't know there had been an earthquake there until he went home and saw it on the news, just like you and I. They're just, just a few miles away, and yet they did not feel it at all. I thought about that last week as we were on vacation and, and as I was considering also this sermon, which I'd already finished and then went back and touched up a little bit. I thought about that as, as I considered that island with two very different sides. One side is a side where there is happiness, where they welcome tourists, where life is enjoyed, even by the poorest. People with absolutely nothing are enjoying their lives. And the other side, rather than welcoming tourists, they welcome relief workers. They welcome doctors who come in and, and builders who come in to help them with their destruction. The other side is dark. There is hurt. There is pain. And I couldn't help of what Paul says here in Romans chapter 7, which is where we are this week. Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about the two sides of us and how there are two different parts to us. One side is focused on God. One side is happy and one side, des one side desires holiness. The other side is dark and it is broken and it is bent on destruction. And at times, both sides seems so strong that it's like that fault line that's just bent on ripping us apart. This past, uh, be back, in, back in April, this past April, the church lost one of the most brilliant minds and, and loving hearts that we had in a man known as Brennan Manning. Brennan Manning was, was a teacher, he was an author, he was more than just more than just another writer, though, this is a man who had lived his faith in some amazing ways. Brennan Manning began his life, well, he began his life, but early in his life, he was a Catholic priest, and he walked away from that. He became a father later, a whole different kind of father. Um, he was a prisoner, voluntarily went to prison 
not because he had done anything wrong, voluntarily had himself incarcerated so that he could serve the prisoners in the prison. He was a man who was very passionate about his life. He also was an alcoholic. And he knew the struggles in his life. He knew both sides of that. He loved God fiercely. He devoted himself to serving others. And, and you know, you read his books, and one of the things that you walk away from when you read Brennan Manning's books is you realize that, well, at times he gives you just a little too much information about who he is and, and what he's been through. And, and at times it's difficult to read those things that, that Manning has written there. He wrote in, in the Ragamuffin Gospel, which if you've not read it, it's a wonderful book. But Brennan Manning wrote this in the Ragamuffin Gospel. When I get honest, I admit I am a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt, I hope and I get discouraged, I love and I hate. I am an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. You can laugh at that a little bit. Are you awake with me this morning? I am an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. Can you relate to that? Maybe it's not beer. Maybe it's something else that you have a, a capacity for. There's likely something in your heart of hearts you believe. You trust God. You desire holiness. You want to be a, a better person. But living alongside that, just like Haiti, living alongside the Dominican Republic, there are those doubts that you struggle with. There are those times when you take control from God. There are times when you want to be anything but holy. You want to be anything but like God. You want to run as far as you can and do your own thing. And you realize that you have an incredible capacity for, well, anything but God. Romans 7 comes pretty much in the middle of this letter. And you feel the tension of Romans 7. It's a tension, it's the tension of the life of a believer who is very aware of his failings. You know, we went back to chapter 3, and back in chapter 3, we learned that all of us have sinned. In chapter 4, we realized that we were all saved by faith. In chapter, in chapter 6, or chapter 5, we were justified. We understood what it meant to be justified, to be made just as if I'd never sinned. In chapter 6, we talked about baptism, and burying our old self in baptism, and and uh, bearing that old life. And then here in chapter, and then after chapter 7, it, it all begins on how we live this life of faith, how we, how we live this new life, how do we live this with God, how do we live it with each other, how do we live it out in the world, how do we live our faith. But here in chapter 7, it's about how do we live with ourselves when we find ourselves pulled in two different directions. And so the question that we have to start with is we have to ask ourselves, how do I reconcile the fact that I still sin with the truth that God has given me a new life? Do you feel that tension? How do I reconcile the fact that I still sin, and I, I admit to myself, I still sin, with the truth that I have to accept in this book that God has given me a new life. Because on the one hand, maybe I'm a hypocrite. Maybe I'm a hypocrite. And maybe I really can't live this life. Maybe, maybe I'm living a lie. Maybe I'm lying to myself. Maybe I'm lying to everyone. I'm lying to those around me. And on the other hand, maybe I'm just a failure. 
maybe the Christian life is too hard. Maybe it's not really worth my time, and why should I even try it? Why not give up? Why not give in and simply say, this life isn't for me. This isn't who I am. And to make matters worse, certain commitments have been made. Our sin reminds us that we break those commitments that were made when we when we, uh, when we live in our sin, we go back to our sin. God, God made a commitment to us. You go back to Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. And Paul says there, you guys are familiar, some of you are familiar with these verses, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yeah, we understand that. We've done that. We've sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He recognized. God recognized that we had fallen short of His standard due to our sin. That there was nothing we could do about it. And in that moment, grace stepped in. He justified us. He changed us. It was a free gift. We didn't earn it by being good. But how are we supposed to respond to this free gift? We responded by agreeing with Him in baptism that we were dead in our sins. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. We looked at that last week, and Paul said, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism was our way of taking God at His Word. God said, you're dead. You've fallen short, you're dead. And we said, yes, we are. We were buried with Him in baptism. And the life that was raised up out of that water, the life that came up out of that water, was a new life, a life controlled by the Holy Spirit with the gift of the Spirit, a life that that was supposed to be holy, everything was new, everything was perfect, and then, well, we did the very thing that Paul told us not to do. Romans chapter 6, verse 12, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Let not sin reign, that you obey its passions. Sin, passion, does that sound familiar? You heard of these concepts? You're aware of them? We've all felt that. We've all faced that struggle. There's an important distinction here, and it's a little difficult to grasp. I want to make sure that, that you can understand it because it's very important. So look at me, make sure. Let me see that your eyes are open. Are we all paying attention? All right. This is a very important distinction to make. Paul isn't talking about sins. You know what sins are, right? Paul isn't talking about sins in this chapter. Sins are those specific things that we do wrong. We have a list of them. We can point them out in our own lives. We're really good at pointing them out in other people's lives. We even have a top ten list, okay? Top ten list of the top ten sins. We know what sins are. Paul isn't talking about sins. His focus is on sin, singular. Sins are those things that we can see. We're aware of them. We have lists. We can point them out. We can name them. Sin, singular, on the other hand, it's invisible. It's destructive. It is that pull that leads us to death and that rips our life apart. Paul says in 
Romans chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. He said, For while we were, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit of death. Bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not the old way of the written code. As long as we live in this flesh, as long as we live with this skin, we're going to feel the pull of sin, and we're going to be very aware of our sins, of our failings, of the things that we do wrong. But we have died to sin. You see the difference? We have died to sin. We know that something new is happening within us, something greater, something that's greater than us, something greater than our obedience, and something that's greater than our failings. That's a tough lesson to learn. Because it means that we find ourselves living between two realities. And you know, I have to say, the next time you feel like beating yourself up because you've screwed up, the next time you're very aware of your failure and you feel like beating yourself up, just remember that an apostle wrote this, okay? Remember that an apostle, someone who met Jesus face to face, someone who saw him, someone who tells us, tells us that he was caught up into the third heaven. I don't know how it happened, he said, but I was there and I saw amazing things, I had visions and revelations and God spoke to him, he heard voices and he was as close to the perfect Christian as you'll ever meet on earth. He struggled with the same things that you and I struggle with and he wrote out of the same frustrations that you and I feel. Look at verse 15. Romans chapter 7, verse 15. Paul says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Anyone relate to that? Really? Let me see some hands. Have you ever been there? Those things that you know you're supposed to do? You don't do them. But that thing you know you're not supposed to do? Yeah, it comes up over and over again. You know what's right, and you want to do what's right, and then, whoops, something slipped out of your mouth that you swore you would never use that word again. <laughs> or you, this thought occurs in your mind, and you're like, I'm not supposed to think about those things. I'm not supposed to go there. Or even worse, an action comes up, and it's not just a slip up. You ran full throttle to that place that action and you feel miserable now you may feel miserable but you're in good company because paul knew that struggle we all know that struggle i mentioned augustine when i started in on romans augustine living in the third century was very aware of his sins very aware of his failings he was a man with deep passion and 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 very tough lusts and he found himself face down in his garden, weeping, crying out to God. And God led Augustine to Romans, the book of Romans. And he found his way to Romans chapter 7. We talked about Martin Luther, the leader of the Reformation, 
We talk about Martin Luther, and, and Luther was someone who knew the failure of sins and, and who felt them deeply. Luther was known in his younger days to actually take a whip and beat himself, trying to beat the sin out of his body. He found peace when he went back to God and he found the book of Romans. And he saw what God led him through here. We all feel the tensions of the two realities that we live in that we are both saint and sinner. We are both holy and unholy. And it needs to lead us to the same place where the Apostle Paul goes. In Romans chapter 7, verse 18, Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Been there, done that? For I do not do the good I want. The evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. There's a story that preachers love to tell when they get to this chapter. and I just wouldn't be right if I didn't tell the story. But it's an old story about an Indian. An old Indian chief that had two, two wolves that he kept as pets. And the wolves were the same age. They were from the same litter. They were brothers. These wolves uh, were identical in every way. And so one of the young braves asked the chief one day, do your wolves ever fight? And he said, yeah, they fight. They fight all the time. And so the young brave asked him, which one wins? And the chief said, the one I feed the most. That's the one that wins. And it's a great story, and it makes a wonderful point. And you know, that we, we ought to recognize that if we're feeding our flesh, if we're looking at things and thinking about things that we know are wrong, if we're going to those places where we know we're going to be tempted, we're probably going to lose, and that wolf is going to win. However, if we're doing the right things, if we're listening to the right things, if we're thinking about the right things, we're probably going to see ourselves win. We're going to come out ahead if we do those things. And it's a wonderful point, but it falls short because it's not up to what you and I can do. It's not about how strong you are. It's not about how good you are at at keeping the rules. The illustration misses the greater point. It's not about me. It's not about what I can do for myself. It's not about me saving myself because I can't save myself. Ultimately, I have to rely on God to do that. That's why in verse 20, Paul says, Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells within me. If I do what I do not want, if I do those things that I know are wrong, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. That is not a cop-out. That is not an excuse. That is not, the devil made me do it. It's the only way to reconcile the life of being saved by grace through your faith with a life that still exists here in this world, in this fallen world, and in this fallen flesh. And I think what we see in Romans, Romans 7, in this light, when we see it in this light, it's less about tension of two parts, and it's more about the glue that holds life together, that keeps us grounded in our faith without feeling miserable in our flesh. And that's where Paul takes us 
with his own struggle here. Not to two opposing forces that are at work in our lives, but to one amazing declaration of faith. It's a cry from the heart of one who wants so badly to rise above the sin of this world and to know the peace that comes from the presence of God. It's not a cry of defeat where Paul just gives up, but it is a cry of dependence. It's the realization that if I'm going to know victory in my life over sin, I'm going to have to trust in Jesus. Paul comes down to the end of Romans chapter 7, verse 21. He says, so I find it to be a law, like gravity, right? Did you guys vote for gravity when they set that up as a law? No, no. You know, I'm against gravity. I want to repeal that law. It doesn't work that way. You know, this is a natural law. This is something that's there, and you can't do anything about it. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul makes no bones about his condition, and neither should we. He says, wretched man that I am. I am wretched. How many people here today are wretched? Put your hands up. You're wretched. All of us are wretched. Maybe not you, Shirley. All the rest of us are wretched. He admits, I'm troubled. I'm divided in myself. I am confused. These things that I know I'm supposed to do, I don't want to do them. I don't want to do the stuff over there that looks more fun. I just don't have to pay for it later. I'm wretched. But the cry of his heart at the end of this chapter is not a helpless cry. It's not, who will rescue me from this body of death? It's a cry of victory because he knows who will rescue him from this body of death. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When you come to that point, when, you confront, when you're confronted by your own wretchedness, your own sin, there's only one place to go. And Paul's struggle, Paul's cry, teaches us something very important about our sin. In fact, there's a couple of lessons here that I want to make sure you don't miss. Two important things you need to understand about your sin. First of all, don't lie to God about your sin. Don't lie to God about your sin. Martin Luther put it this way. It's a little confusing, but his way of saying it was this. Sin boldly, but believe in God more boldly still. You sin boldly, but you believe in God more boldly still. Don't lie to God about your sin. We might be able to lie to each other about our sins. You know, and I don't have to tell you what was going on out behind the woodshed, Mom. You know, you need to know what I was doing out there, you know. 
We might be able to lie to ourselves about our sin. You know, there's those times when we've got a little juicy bit of gossip, you know, but instead of telling you gossip, I say, I have a prayer request that you need to know about. There's somebody who's done something, and this is a prayer request. This is not gossip, but you need to know what they did. You've never done that, right? No? Okay, good. Uh, don't lie to God about your sin. God sees it all. He knows you're a sinner. And you know what? He loves you anyway. He knows you're a sinner, and he loves you anyway. Don't hide it from him. Don't tiptoe around it. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't pretend it's not there. Own it. I am a sinner. Don't lie about it, because if you lie about it, that's a sin too. Don't do that. Just own it. And just as importantly, maybe even more importantly, number one, don't lie to God about your sin. Number two, don't lie to yourself about God's grace. Don't lie to yourself about God's grace. Don't allow yourself to believe that your sin is so heinous, that your sin is so vile, that your sin is so full of evil that the grace of God cannot reach you. Don't lie to yourself and believe that you've thought of something that no one else has ever done. <laughs> because you haven't. The Apostle Paul says, Christ Jesus came to save sinners, of which I am the worst. If you've never taken Christians out into the street and beat them and stoned them and had them killed and thrown in prison, you don't win. Okay? You're still not the worst. Don't lie to yourself about the grace of God, that the grace of God cannot reach you, that you are so bad, that you've done something so horrible that God does not want you. Don't ever buy into that lie. Don't give up. Don't fall into the lie that you're beyond saving or that you're not worth saving because the fact is God so loved you that he gave his one and only son. And if you were the only sinner, if you were the only one who was going to miss out on his promise, you know what? he still would have given his son for you because you are worth it. Because you are worth saving. And please realize this. The very fact that we struggle with these questions, the very fact that you and I struggle with questions of our own wretchedness is all the more proof that we're not beyond saving. I mean, if you didn't struggle, I'd worry. You know, if you were perfectly happy being a miserable sinner, I'd be a little worried about that. But the reality is, without the struggles of Romans 7, without that tension, that, that war within us that fights against itself, we would never get to the joy of Romans chapter 8. Now, I know we're taking this chapter by chapter, but I want you to peek ahead. I'm going to give you permission just to peek ahead, just to the first verse. Don't read any more, but just the very first verse of Romans chapter 8. Look at how Romans 8 begins. Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's you. That's me. Who will rescue me from this body of death? The answer is obvious. 
Jesus Christ has rescued us. That's what makes His grace all the more amazing. You know, you and I see our sins day by day, detail by detail. We realize how often we fail, how often we fall. But at that moment that He saved you, He not only knew what you had done, He not only knew the sins that you had already committed, He knew what you were going to do. He knew those times in the future when you would feel so far away from Him, when you would fail so miserably. And He forgave you anyway. He knew those times when you would slip up. Whoops. Didn't mean to say that. Didn't mean to do that. Didn't mean to think that. And He knew those times when you were just going to flat out run as far away from Him and as far away from holiness as you could. And He loved you anyway. That's what makes His grace amazing. That's what makes His grace worth singing about. We're going to sing a song that's old and familiar. We're going to sing it in a new way, and the choir is going to come and help us do this today. You've heard them sing it before, but I don't think we've ever sung it as a group together. But amazing grace isn't just about what God gave us that day when Jesus died on the cross. And amazing grace is not just about what you received that day when you gave your life up and you said yes I'm a sinner yes I am dead in myself and I want that new life it isn't just what you felt that day when you were buried in baptism amazing grace is there for you today it's there for you tomorrow it's there for you as long as we live in this life it's there for eternity when we've been there 10,000 years we'll still be singing about it and whatever wretchedness you're feeling in yourself today, however wretched that might be, whatever that deep, dark thing that only you and God know about and you will never tell anyone else about ever, His grace is greater than that. His grace is more amazing than that. That's worth singing about. If you need us to pray with you, we would love to do that as well. Let's stand together as we sing.